you know, oftentimes <clears throat> when you're reading really just about anything, uh, but especially when you're reading scripture, it, it's helpful to know not just what the writer said, but why he said it. Uh, that can make a difference uh, a lot of the time. And when you look at the context of First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it makes a lot of difference. Uh, Peter starts off telling his readers to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And what he's saying is, is that we are always to set God aside as holy in, in all characteristics. He is holy and we always need to approach him that way. And he says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, when he's talking about giving a defense, he's not talking about like a legal defense. You know, somebody is accusing you of something and you're trying to prove that you didn't do it uh, or something like that. What, what the defense means here is a reasoned argument. In other words, if, if these people come and they begin to ask you, why are you the way you are, you should be able to give them a reason from scripture as to why that is. You need to give a reasoned answer, a reasoned argument uh, for what you are and the things you do. And he says, do it also with meekness and fear. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this uh, particular passage is when you, you look into the broader context of this, uh, what you find is Peter is writing to some people that are undergoing a lot of persecution. These people were not having uh, an easy time at all. Go back over into chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, he addresses them as sojourners and pilgrims, and this is something that he does, you know, repeatedly in this book. A, uh, a sojourner or a pilgrim is somebody who's just passing through. They don't hold citizenship. They are not citizens of the country in which they happen to be at the moment. And that is one of the things that Peter talks about a lot in this book and mentions uh, to them over and over again, because one of the best ways <clears throat> to overcome a, uh, a persecution of some kind is to remember, you know, uh, this place is not that important to me. My citizenship is somewhere else. I'm only worried about going home. And what happens to me here passes by. It's temporary in nature. I don't have to worry about it so much. And he does that over and over and over again in this book, talking to these people uh, about the, the uh, persecution that they're undergoing. And another thing about this, too, is this implies that Christians are different. Now, he doesn't mean that Christians are different in the way, say, uh, uh, Amish or uh, uh, some of those people are, you know, there, there are groups of, of people in the country that they dress in a different way deliberately in order to draw attention to themselves. And you know them when you see them. 
you know, you don't have any difficulty knowing who they are or what they represent. Well, he's not talking about that. Uh, we are not supposed to be different just to draw attention to ourselves. We're different because God requires us to be different. And as you go through <clears throat> this book, he talks about, uh, again, you go back over into chapter 2, verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers. He says some of these people are, are going to talk bad about you just because you're different. They have no real reason to do it, but one of the reasons that people will do that oftentimes is because you appear to be what they know they should be. And they don't like the difference. They don't want to be different uh, or don't want you to be different than everybody else because you highlight the fact that they could have been. And it's one of those things, if you have somebody who is doing what they are supposed to do and thereby shining a light on everybody else that's not doing what they're supposed to do, it makes them very uncomfortable. And when you get uncomfortable, you have a choice. You either say, okay, I'm uncomfortable because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to and they are, so I need to start doing what I'm supposed to so I can be like them, and I'm not going to come out uh, on the short end if somebody starts making uh, comparisons between us. Or you can try to uh, drag the person down to your level. The one that is doing what they're supposed to do, you can try to make them look bad so that there is no contrast anymore. And that, unfortunately, is generally the way things tend to go. Uh, we don't want to better ourselves. We'll just drag everybody else down to our level, and that way nobody can point a finger at us and say, you're not what you should be. But that's what Peter is talking about. These people are going to be spoken against, but he says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You can have a positive effect. You can make people start to wonder, well, maybe that's the way I should be. Now, again, most of the time it goes the other way, but not always. Uh, I do remember talking to somebody one time, they were talking about where they, where they worked, and they said there was somebody in there that, you know, they, they could not <coughs> form a sentence without some four-letter word in it. Uh, and it was just something constant. They, I mean, they weren't even thinking about what they were doing. But it was a constant thing. But when they found out that this person was a Christian and didn't appreciate that, they kind of started to throttle it back. You know, not so much. I'm, I'm not going to say that as much as I used to. And it was because they started to feel uncomfortable in the, in the presence of a person who was doing what they should. And they didn't want to draw attention to themselves by the things they were saying anymore. And so eventually it got where you could actually, you know, walk around, stay there for a while, and have a decent conversation without all of the words that you wanted to blank out. It had a positive effect. And that's one of the things that we as Christians have always got to bear in mind. It's not just what we believe. It's not just what we say but it's mostly what we do. You know, you can, <clears throat> you can convince yourself of almost anything if you want to badly enough, 
you can convince yourself that you're perfectly all right. It's one of those things, you know, used to people, I've heard them, now this is talking about politics, and I'm not going to get into any real serious details about it, but uh, some people would be talking politics, and one of them would say, you know, well, you should not vote for those people. Instead, you should vote for these. And, you know, look at that person and look at all of the dirty deals they've done, you know, how they've been investigated so many times, and what's their, their reason for going to go ahead and vote for them anyway? Oh, they're all the same. You know, everybody's as bad as they are. Well, if that were really the case, then you shouldn't vote for anybody. But that's how they would justify it to themselves. Yes, the person I want to vote for is really, really bad, but everybody else is just as bad, so I can vote for them with a clear conscience. You know, it's bad reasoning, but it's one of those things that people oftentimes do. But uh, here in, uh, in the book of First Peter, Peter talks about the, the difference their life is supposed to be. Again, you look over in uh, chapter 2, uh, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, because all of this is true, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this <clears throat> is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He says that we are to be in subjection to the civil government. Now, one of the problems that people have a lot of the time, at least as far as you know, relatively minor infractions of the law are concerned, people seem to have the attitude, well, it's not illegal if you don't get caught. You know, it, it, as long as nobody gets hurt, as long as I don't get caught and I don't get a ticket, you know, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And again, everybody does it. Well, the thing is, is that here, he says this is the will of God, that we obey the law. And Paul says the same thing over in Romans 13. We obey the law. Christians should be the most law-abiding people on the planet. And as Paul says over there in the book of Romans, it's because it's not just because we're afraid of what the law will do to us if they catch us. He said it's not just that, it's for conscience sake. Because we are violating a law of God if we violate a law of man. God says obey the law. Now, Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 tells us that there are exceptions. And that is any time that the civil government wants to make us go against God's law, we reject what they say, we do what God says. Peter there said we must obey God rather than man. But if it's not a case where they are telling us to do something uh, against God's law, then we are supposed to obey. That's what we are supposed to do. Be law-abiding people. And, you know, you, you, you look at the other, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1 is a good one wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives 
when they observe your trash conduct accompanied by fear. Now, you know, uh, there is a lot of controversy among some people about the whole idea of wives being in submission to their husbands, and we'll save that for another day. But the point that he's making here is they observe your chaste conduct. And he says, without a word, they might be one. Now, what Peter is saying is that you can have a very strong effect on people, and especially if you have a close relationship with them. You can affect their lives to the degree that they say, you know, this person really believes this stuff. They really believe this stuff. It's important to them. Maybe I ought to look at this a little more closely. Maybe I ought to take this a little bit more seriously because they believe it. I know they believe it because they live it. And see, people will believe what you live a whole lot more than they'll believe what you say. You know, it's easy to say it. Anybody can do that, ask any politician. But it's harder to do it. And if, if your life is, is going along with the things that you say, that you believe, people say, yeah, they take it seriously. And he says you could win your spouse without even saying a word, just by the things that you do as you live with them from day to day. So it, it's important. The things that we do, the influence that we have, can have a, a real effect in a positive way, but it can also have a real effect in a negative way. You know, I, I don't know about you folks. It's been a long time ago since I've, I heard somebody say something like this. Uh, it may not happen now. I don't know. Uh, probably it does, but there are times when you would talk to people about, you know, well, you used to be a member of the congregation, and you just quit going anywhere, and, you know, you really need to get this, get this right. You need to get your life right with God. You need to come back, uh, repent of your sins, and become a member of the congregation again, and they'll say, well, yeah, I, I would do that, but you, you know so-and-so. They go down there, and I would never enter that building as long as that person's there. Do you know what kind of stuff they do? Why, they do this and they do that and they do something else and they're in full fellowship down there and if they can accept them, you know, I can stay home and be a better Christian than that. So what they're doing is they're saying because one person is not what they ought to be, then they're not going to be what they ought to be either. And that's just foolish. Oftentimes I think it's just being used as an excuse. They don't want to go, but they've got to have a reason for it. And that's what they pick. But it's, it's just like the, uh, uh, what is it, Westboro Baptist Church, the ones that do all of the signs and all of that stuff. Uh, one of the best things I ever heard was, you know, it, 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 is, it is really ironic that they are going to get to spend eternity with the people that they hate most. Because as long as they've got the attitude that they do, they're not going to heaven. And the people that they're protesting against might not. That's totally beside the point. They won't. And if a person decides that he is not going to attend services of the Lord's church because of somebody else that's there, if that person is what they say they are, they're going to be lost, but this person's going to be lost too because they let them influence them to stay away. So guess what? They get to spend eternity with the person they hate the most. And that's silly. You know, somebody once said that the best revenge you can have on people that have done things to you is to live a good life because it'll irritate them to death. You know, I tried to hurt that person to look at them. They act like nothing's happened. 
They just go on about their business. They don't pay any attention to that at all. I just totally wasted my time hating them and trying to do something bad to them. It is. It's a good, it's a good form of revenge uh, that you really, I don't think, can actually call revenge. But over in, uh, in uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 1 of 1 Peter, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Again, you're not doing what they do, so they have to drag you down to their level. They're going to speak evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to have to account for it someday. But he says, live the proper life. Now, when he says, prepare to give an answer, that one is really important. Because what, what he's saying is, is that when you have Christians, in this particular instance, undergoing some really serious persecution, people are going to watch. And don't think for a second that people don't watch you now. Because they do. But people are going to be watching how you react to this persecution. And they're going to say, you know, if they were doing that to me, I wouldn't act that way. You know, that they're not giving in. You know, to them, life's not hopeless. They're not grieving about how badly they're being treated, things like that. They're just going along with their lives to the best of their ability, and they just keep acting like good people. And that's strange. Most people don't react that way, so why do they? And then eventually somebody is going to come and ask you, why? Why can you do this? How is it that you can live this kind of a life even when you're being persecuted? And he says they're going to ask you about this. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? Why do you have that hope? Well, because life is temporary. Yes, bad things can happen to me while I'm here, but they don't amount to anything, at least not in terms of eternity. Yes, bad people can do bad things to me here, but again, it's not going to be, you know, the absolute end of things anymore. You know, I don't have to worry about these kind of things because God says that life is temporary. I am only here for a while. And that when this life is over, all of those things are gone. They're gone away and they won't bother me anymore. That's why I act the way that I do. And again, you have people who say, why do they act the way they do? And they will believe how you live before they'll believe what you say. Because as long as you're living it, you're proving to them that yes, you really do believe it. And that's what they're wanting to know. So he says, uh, again, you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, and you do it with meekness and fear. You know, th there are some people that have, uh, uh, they've gotten the idea that since Christians 
and I'm talking about in, in the New Testament sense of the word, since Christians are right, and they consider themselves to be a Christian, whether they actually are or not, but since they consider themselves to be one, that they're on the right side, and they can talk bad about everybody that's on the wrong side. And Christians don't do that. It's one of those things, you know, it's not uh, a matter of us being able to save ourselves because we can't do it. And if you look at what Paul had to say about how Christians are to react to some of these things, uh, you know, he makes that plain uh, over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 23, he's giving some advice to Timothy, and he says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And that's some of the best advice you can ever get. Uh, there are people, especially it seems people in the religious world that want to argue about some of the most ridiculous things ever. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Who cares? Some people used to. But he says, avoid those things. They're a waste of time. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. We don't quarrel. Now, you can point out that somebody is wrong without being confrontational. It's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. You know, are, are you going to slap them upside the head with a dead fish? Are you going to say, uh, you know, I'm concerned about you and I, I wanted to try to give you some good advice? You know, are you acting out of a desire to win the argument or are you approaching them with a desire to win a soul? That's the difference. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You know, one of the things that I, I have found a time or two is, you know, you, you try to look sometimes for a, uh, a common denominator uh, in, in people or in situations. You know, you want to be able to group things together in, in one nice package, so to speak. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about the way the, the Bible characterizes uh, sinners is like here, Paul says, you know, you're doing this that they may come to their senses. So sinners are not reasoning correctly. In other words, they're not in the right minds. Sin is a form of insanity because you're doing things that are going to hurt you, which don't make much sense. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2, uh, there Paul is talking about uh, unreasonable men. When he says unreasonable, he's talking about people who have lost the ability to reason properly. You know, they can't look at things and say, you know, A plus B equals C, and that's just the way it is. Uh, they can't think that way. They're not logical. They're not thinking properly. So, again, it's kind of a form uh, of insanity. But we have to be the kind of people who will try to draw attention to what God wants us to do not us in particular. Over in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, this is one of those cases where there's a little difference depending on which uh, translation you're using. 
but in, in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Now, when he's talking about charitable deeds, uh, the American Standard Version of uh, 1901 uses righteousness, deeds of righteousness. In other words, what you're doing is you are doing the things that God told you to do. These are the deeds that you're doing. And he says, make sure that when you're doing that, that you're not doing it just to have people look at you and say, oh, look at them. Look at what a wonderful person they are. You know, how righteous they are. You know, wow, they're, they're awesome. He says, no, that's not why you're supposed to be doing it. And if that is why you're doing it, then it's not going to do you any eternal good. And he goes on, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. If that's what you wanted, that's what you get. And that's all. You have people say good things about you, but God's not going to because you're not doing it for the right reason. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Uh, he goes on and talks about prayer and some other things. Now, some people look at this and say, well, okay, you know, on the one hand, I'm supposed to be doing the things that God wants me to do and trying to hide them from people as best I can. But then on the other hand, I'm supposed to be doing these things so that people will look at the life that I live and it will attract them to Christianity. So, you know, those two things are mutually exclusive. Which one do I do? They are not mutually exclusive. You can still do them both. Because mainly what, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 is what is your attitude? Why are you doing it? And sometimes we fall into the same mistake that the Pharisees did. The Pharisees did not think it mattered why. As long as they were going through the motions, as long as they were paying tithes of their mint and their anise and their cumin, everything was fine. I'm doing the right things. I'm doing what God tells me to do. And it doesn't matter what my heart's like. It doesn't matter why I'm doing them. It doesn't matter what else I may do to people. Those things don't matter. Yes, they do. It's not just going through the motions but it's also not trying to tell yourself that a, you know, a, a righteous heart is all you need. You know, some people say, well, it's not about what you do, it's just about the condition of your heart. Well, the thing is, is if your heart's not right, then you're not gonna be doing the right things. You have to have the heart right, but you also have to do the right things. You know, when Jesus was talking to that Samaritan woman at the well there in John chapter four, he says, you know, the time is coming when, when God is going to re require people to worship in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where, not on that mountain and not in Jerusalem, but it matters how and why. If you worship in spirit and in truth, you're doing the right things for the right reasons. And that's what we're required to do. So we don't do these things just to draw attention to ourselves and we have to have a knowledge base when somebody says, why are you a Christian? Why are you the way you are? Why do you live like this? We have to be able to tell them. You know, we have got to have enough of a, uh, a Bible education that we can give people a reason for this. 
because otherwise, it's, you know, well, they don't know why they're doing it, you know, or like most uh, uh, denominational people, you know, why do you do that? Well, you know, just the way we were raised, you know, I'm just doing the, what my family has done for generations. Well, why? Well, I don't know. That's just what we've always done. And a lot of people are like that. Why? Because that's what we've always done. You can't have an inherited faith. Faith has got to be personal. It has got to be something that you believe, and you believe it for a reason. That's one of the things that used to drive me crazy. When I first became a Christian, I still had a lot of questions. You know, uh, growing up in the Church of God, going to Baptist churches a lot of the time, I'd been exposed to the Bible to an extent. I finally came to the conclusion that, you know, that all of them say that they, they, you know, use the Bible as their reason for everything that they do. You know, they're following the Bible, and it didn't take too terribly long for me to figure out that that was not true. And I just figured everybody was the same. Turned out I was wrong. Glad I was. But you have got to have a knowledge base, because I would go and ask people, why? Why do we not use mechanical instruments of music? There's not a verse in the New Testament anywhere that says you shall not use a piano or an organ or have a band or anything like that. And if it doesn't say that we can't do it, why do we do it? Well, that's the way we've always done it. But why? Well, because the Bible says so. Where? I don't know, it's in there somewhere. You know, you, you need to know why you believe what you believe. If you are a Christian simply because your parents and your grandparents were Christians, then you've got an inherited faith. And they're not very strong. You need to have personal reasons, personal knowledge, and a personal faith. Go in there and look. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we need to have a knowledge base that will allow us to tell people why we are what we are. Because if we don't, you know, we can't, we can't convince them because we don't have any evidence to give them. And we're not convincing ourselves very well either. You know, over in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer is talking to some people who had the same kind of problems that a, a lot of congregations, I'm afraid, have today. In verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says, folks, you all been going backwards. You need to get and start hitting the book again and start learning these things over again because if you don't, and that's what he talks about a little bit later on. You know, he talks about some of the things that can possibly be waiting for someone 
who doesn't halt that backward slide but continues to lose what they already had. He says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the, and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So you go backwards far enough and you're not ever going to be able to change it. You need to change it. But he says that we are supposed to be able to answer people. You know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Someone who can handle the Bible properly. Now, this does not mean that you have to know everything. It absolutely does not. Uh, if you go about Bible study properly, you are still going to be learning things the day you die, and it doesn't matter if you live to be 120. There will always be things in there for you to find. But you do have to know some things. And I've told people before, you know, one of the best ways to learn, teach. If you teach something, you will learn more about that than you ever thought there was there to learn. And uh, I've kind of halfway accidentally fell into a couple of situations like that. And uh, it, it was absolutely the truth. I was talking about premillennialism to a, a, a denominational guy that I worked with. And uh, he was asking me questions I didn't know. But he'd ask me a question and I'd say, well, I don't know, but I'll go home and look into it and I'll come back and talk to you again tomorrow. And then tomorrow I'd come back and I'd say, well, this is the answer to your question. Well, well, what about this one? Well, uh, I'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it some more. I learned more about premillennialism in trying to show him that it was wrong than I would have anywhere else. Teach something and you'll learn more about it than you ever thought there was to learn. But he also tells us that we are to do this with meekness. Folks, this stuff doesn't come from us. And that was one of the best things that I, that I ever uh, got in the habit of doing when I would talk to people from denominational groups, I'd have them look it up in their own Bible. You know, well, what about this? Well, look and see what it says here. Well, what about that? Look and see what it says there. And at that conclusion, you could say, well, you know, if you want to argue the point, you can, but you need to argue it with Jesus or with Paul or with Peter and not with me because I didn't say any of this. They did. So argue it with them if you don't agree. And that leaves you without a whole lot to say. But we should approach this and anything else with meekness. <coughs> because, you know, when you get right down to it, uh, you know, you used to hear people say, there but for the grace of God go I. I hadn't heard anybody say that in a long time. Uh, but what it was doing is it was, it was voicing a realization that if circumstances had been somewhat different, I could have found myself in exactly the same position that person's in. Now, they were not trying to say that God had, had providentially or miraculously intervened in their lives, but they were saying that things could have been different. And so I can't look down on that person because I could have found myself in exactly the same position. But now saying that does not mean that you don't tell them that what they're doing is wrong. It just talks about how you're supposed to do it. You know, in uh, 
chapter 3 of the book of Titus, he starts out, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish. He said, we can't talk bad about them because we used to be just like them. We once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, he says it's not because we were so good. He didn't save us because we were good people. He, he saved us in spite of the fact that we were bad people. It's not all about us. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we're supposed to do. And with meekness, realize that we really are not better than other people we may be Christians that are going to go to heaven when we die but we're not better people than they are you know the only difference is, is we did obey they haven't done that yet but hopefully they will but we do it with meekness and fear there are far too few people these days that show the proper amount of reverence and respect for God that's what he's talking about when he talks about fear you know in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, uh, Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. When he says, fear God, he says, you should be in awe of God. You should approach him with the absolute utmost reverence. Consider his position. He is the creator of everything. And he offers us an opportunity to go to heaven and stay with him for eternity. That is a great and wonderful thing. You don't take his name in vain. You don't think badly about him. You don't think that God can make mistakes. You look at him as this supreme, holy God that he is. And people so rarely do that anymore. They don't think about that God that way, but they should. You know, it may be that there's someone here this evening that is not a child of God. Now, the only way you can become one is to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. You could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You could be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer, confess your sin to him from a repentant heart, and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. Or it might be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those saints that are gathered here. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing?